Hello, this is Glenn, and today on Infants on Thrones, I sit down with psychotherapist Josh Neal to begin a series of reflective conversations about what we've learned about mental health through the experience of a Mormon faith crisis. You can find Josh at Capitol Hill Therapy in Seattle, Washington. And now, this is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to do? Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy anything this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone all right josh you know it has been a good five months going on six months since I've recorded or published anything for infants on thrones. And the, um, the last thing that I did, I was kind of in the middle of a, uh, I was reviewing Yuval Harari gave a lecture about uh, AI and kind of chat GPT. And I was doing kind of like a multi-part review of it. And I just never finished it because one of the things that I said I was interested in exploring the space between like my conscious mind, what I'm aware of and my unconscious, what I'm not aware of and like chat GPT, all the games I was playing with it in the the early days, it's still early days. Right. But, but for me back in May, it was, it was leading me inward. And about that time, this I, I was reading uh, the body keeps the score for the a trauma class that I'm taking right now, and just a bunch of stuff came up. I've described it to people as if I lifted up this rock and I found all these little like kind of maggots and worms crawling <laughs> underneath. You know, like so for the last five or six months, I haven't felt motivated to do really anything for infants on thrones, and it's been weird for me because I've been podcasting in this ex-Mormon space since 2009. And I don't think from 2009 to 2023, there's ever been five months or six months that I haven't been podcasting at least once a week. So it's been this weird break for me. And then you sent me this text a couple of weeks ago that is kind of like this spark that's, uh, you're you're bringing, bringing me back, Josh. So I wanted to say thanks for that. And you're, is, am I right in calling you a psychotherapist? Yes. Tell me what that is. And tell me a little bit about yourself, Josh. I'm really glad you're here. Thank you. Um, also glad to get you back on the airwaves. <laughs> Are these airwaves? I don't even know what you call these things anymore. Like, it's just weird what it is. I don't know what it is. I think that the the younger generation is calling it content. So content, you're, put, yeah. you're putting out content again. Yeah, I'm a content creator. The, yeah. the, the consumers will be overjoyed. As if I'm not always creating content at some kind of vibrational level, even with the thoughts that I think and the feelings that I feel, Josh. Anyway, I'm getting into like some weird stuff here. Please yeah. tell me about yourself so I can shut up for a little bit. <laughs> okay. Um, 
So psychotherapists, basically there are um, different people that study psychology and apply it in different ways. Uh, psychologists study and publish and teach and can do um, psychotherapy, which is a an application of um, psychology education for the purpose of healing um, other other humans would be the way that I might put it. And then there are psychiatrists, which have the lens of the medical um, model as well as uh, they can do psychotherapy as well. But I specifically, um, I have a master's degree that I got at Seattle University in the Master's of Art in Psychology Existential Phenomenological Program. And uh, the purpose of that degree is to certify you in the state of Washington as a licensed mental health counselor, which is our credential under which I practice psychotherapy. So, so do do you do more on the, like working with people one-on-one or on the research and publication side? Uh, Where do you fall? Yeah, my degree is uh, utilized primarily for psychotherapy. So I don't do any researching. I could teach classes and I also do um, provide ongoing uh, training to other therapists, um, in a CEU program that trains them on the weekends in the, um, modality of gestalt therapy, which is the method that I use to apply my psychological learning for this, this endeavor of, of human healing and growth and development. Yeah. And I definitely want to hear more about gestalt therapy as we go forward. How, how how long have you been working as a therapist? How many years? Uh, we're coming up on 10, I think. No, we're at 10. So I'm 10. coming up on 11. Yeah. Do you have any idea the number of clients that you've worked with over the last 10 years? Oh, man. Um, once you include my work in community mental health, the numbers go way up because you just have so many clients there but then i didn't do that for as long so probably hundreds of people yeah yeah some people stay a long time in my practice and work with me for years so it's kind of once i got into community mental health my number or into private practice my numbers started to go smaller but Mm. they were still rather large because i was seeing people uh as a paneled insurance provider. Mm-hmm. And then when I adjusted to um, private pay, then that probably kept longer term clients for longer and less of the turnover of like insurance clients, which was a uh-huh. higher volume. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll want to talk to you about that more off, <laughs> off the airwaves <laughs> at some point. Cause I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm six months away now from uh, finishing my coursework and starting my practicum I'm in an internship and I'm going to be working with somebody here in Arizona for a year or so before I am ready to like get out but I know those decisions between like working with the insurance panel or or not is pretty a big pretty big decision so I'm curious yeah yeah but we don't need to we don't need to take up time on on okay all right but so so you're also a, a former Mormon Tell me about your, uh, did, did you, did you listen to Infants on Thrones back when we did like the Mormon cred scale? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I did. I, I was thinking decent, about that earlier today. <laughs> I have a decent amount. We didn't, we didn't make Bishop. So I think, 
I think I probably fall short of that status. Uh, anything above that, I think I'm trying. I seriously cannot remember if I ever was an elders quorum president, mm. but I feel like I might've been, mm. it was easily within the realm of like a counselor or possibly in there. Yeah. Um, but served mission did not get married in the temple. I got out before marriage. Mm. Um, so I didn't get that cred, but uh, all the way to mission. And do we count leadership roles on the mission? Does that, I don't that even remember. It was such a little douchey thing that we did. It is kind so of as a douchey. Joke. I know. You I know. know. I'm like, I don't want to talk about my <laughs> status of ascent in, as a missionary. It's so embarrassing. And it's embarrassing that when you're there, I cared so much about that. It was so validating. Yeah, yeah. It was. It, it was. Yeah. It was in the early days of Infants on Thrones, and I remember we were doing a listener essay, <laughs> and somebody like did a listener essay, and it was pretty good. But there was something about his attitude. I don't know that kind of like bothered us. <laughs> but it was just like douchey little things. Then we found out, like, wait a minute, you only. You, you joined the church for like a year and then you left and now you're complaining like you don't have the right to do that. We we put our blood, sweat and tears in this thing. We've got more. Right. It was just like this silly little thing that we did. But anyway, yeah. So the the Mormon cred, Bob's Mormon cred skill, because Bob got really like pedantic with it. I like that. And I hope that at some point he included how much you spent on tithing and fast offerings. Oh, because yeah, we that, never, yeah. that would be a game changer. Although that also is no, no, no how consistently you paid tithing because mm. that's kind of even more of an asshole move because then you're looking at how much people earn. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it should be how consistent, how many consistent years of full tithing did you contribute? That See, should and, be a, yeah. and I said douchey and you elevated to asshole, like in, yeah. and in the hierarchy of insults <laughs> in my mind, douchey is kind of like, you know, but asshole, but you're right. Yeah. It was, it was very kind of asshole that we did. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so you've got your ex-Mormon cred and what was your, what, yeah. what was your exit out of the church? Why, why did you decide you didn't want to be that anymore? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think I heard John DeLynn say this, that um, it's basically an emotional thing. Mm -hmm. And I really started to see it as a relationship thing. And the way that I would put my ending to Mormonism is, it's like a breakup, but with reality. And it's because we weren't a good fit anymore. <laughs> and um, I was very devout. I was very, very um, involved in Mormonism. It was a high level part of my identity. I might have been like a very enthusiastic super Mormon uh, and liked the rules and liked the way it validated and did these things and in my family growing up my parents i later learned have a high level of emotional immaturity which mm -hmm. makes your childhood rather difficult in some ways um and one of the ways i could get validation from my parents my mother and my father both actually was by exhibiting zeal towards mormonism yeah and so I've really come to appreciate how much that functioned as a method of getting love and validation from my immediate family. So I was extremely obsessed with it because it was one of the most important ways I got that from them. And uh, grew up in the scouting program, grew up in young men's, all those things. Um, 
callings and speaking in church, et cetera. And when I came up to Seattle um, to go to graduate school, I had been going through a very, very hard breakup with a girlfriend that I dated through uh, my undergraduate degree, which I got at UVU, Utah Valley University for out-of-state listeners. Uh, And I think what happened primarily was two things. I realized that Mormonism didn't treat my broken heart in any way that helped Mm. personally. I didn't get healing or solace from recommendations for prayer or this was something bigger than what Mormonism could cope with. And since my upbringing was to believe that God could heal these things and yet the things that helped the most were a little bit of time and also um, snowboarding. I did a lot of snowboarding and that really got me in my body and got me some space. And that was really mostly what I had at the time to cope. Um, But it made me realize there were things that Mormonism couldn't help me with Mm. that were just insanely painful for me at the time. And, uh, and then with the structure and support I got in graduate school, I had spiritual experiences when I would learn. And Mm. maybe that's some of the things you were talking about. I had spiritual experiences, experiences I had otherwise only organized within Mormon framework. I was experiencing outside of the Mormon experience. And so for the first time I started to get needs met in a system completely outside of Mormonism. And so the validation, the education, the structure, that all made sense to my mind. It's what I grew up doing and I knew how to do it, but I basically see it as cheating on my girlfriend, the church, or starting to get into another relationship. And it was meeting my needs more sufficiently. And for me, what happened then is I began becoming obsessed with Mormon history. And I started to do certain things about that to try to, for me, if I'm looking at it, and again, this is a bit of kind of my gestalt thinking, which is looking at how needs organize meaning and behavior Mm. in humans. And so I see that I had needs that were now getting new information of how to meaningfully meet them outside of Mormon theological framework. So I'm having validation massively through this being a master student because of um i think societally and also within mormonism it means a lot to become higher educated Mm. and so uh that was happening and just for me personally because growing up my life was also very chaotic and i never felt very comfortable in school Mm. or competent in education systems i often felt really anxious in school. I had a lot of energy. They always wanted to diagnose me with ADHD and they tried, but never could. I didn't have all the symptoms of it. Um, but I think I was just very anxious and very energetic and wanted to move and, and do things like that. Um, and so being in a master's program felt like a big validating event of like my value as a person and things like that. And I think for me, it felt like there's a silver bullet in breaking the illusion of of an ideology, but in this particular case, Mormonism, and it's to finally critically allow yourself to question it. And so I don't think I'd ever put Mormonism on the table to say, can this hold up? Yeah. Can this hold up to, scru- um, to 
yeah, well, I'm, I'm lacking the word, but scrutiny. Can this yeah. hold up against scrutiny? And once I finally asked the question in my mind and let my mind actually ask it, um, to me, it was just the wooden stake to the vampire heart and it just, it was gone. Um, it just, I was like, yeah, no, it's not true. This this thing I was told that was heavily enforced by social um, kind of pressure, really, um, didn't have that. I'm getting needs met elsewhere. And um, I just felt like uh, I didn't really have... I described it this way. It was like I was slowly moving out of the house of my like long-term partner or something. And eventually I came home one day and I was like, there's nothing for me here anymore. And all my stuff's in this other place. And I think we're done. And that was also kind of how a lot of the stuff I did before finally quitting um, unfolded. Uh, and then I had a friend who was leaving Mormonism and he basically had heard me say some stuff and he's much more, he has a much higher impulse like response than I do. And he was like, yeah, I'm out. This is over. And I was like, me too. <laughs> and that was like the more official way that I, um, I did it. And then, yes, I, I listened to a ton of, of your podcast, Infants on Thrones. That was awesome. I was just obsessed. It was, mm -hmm. it, the, the, the challenge of being, you know, going through the all consuming, you know, faith transition was extremely intense for me. Um, for years, I was listening to a lot of podcasts. I was doing a lot of my own kind of processing. And um, I think Mormon expression, Mormon stories, Infants on Thrones, those were the big ones that I was really consuming. And and I read In Sacred Loneliness and um, Bushman's book, No Man yeah. Knows. No, No Man Rough Knows. Stone rolling. Yeah. yeah. Basically, it's the slower, more padded version of No Man Knows My History. Right. Yeah. <laughs> read the abridged version <laughs> yeah well that was a lot josh yeah and and there were a couple yeah. things that you said in there that i i wanted to to double click on and revisit sure. and the first one when you were talking about your parents mm -hmm. i don't remember if you said that they had high emotional uh immaturity or low emotional maturity but it was one of those <laughs> yeah it was one of those things and that's such a fascinating thing to just recognize and understand more about like parents that and even I know you're not you're not married and you don't have kids I have three kids and mm -hmm. I might also myself be an emotionally immature in certain areas right. parent with them right, right. Uh, despite how <laughs> I wish I wasn't you know so I'm yeah. curious to hear more uh, like what that what that means for you, like how, uh, how you see that in your parents, what is low emotional maturity or high emotional immaturity, kind of what role maybe the church plays in that, that that's one thing that really interested me. And it led right into needs mm -hmm. not being met. And these mm -hmm. needs that you have that mm -hmm. they might not even be acknowledged. Mm -hmm. um, you know, mm -hmm. so you're, you've got needs, they're not being met. And that that ties into uh, gestalt therapy, which I'm very, very interested in. <laughs> All right. You just pulled a um, John DeLynn five-part 
paragraph <laughs> question. Yeah, like, I did without. Yeah, with my hands tied behind my back. It was easy. You, he's got nothing on you. <laughs> um, so let me that. take part one. Let me take part one, and then we can go from there. I think I can remember it as well, but you can also remind me. Yeah. Um, but just talking about my experience with my parents and around this idea there's a book i think it's called children of or adult children of emotionally mature parents yeah and that's a very good read for a lot of people i think um definitely um useful as a concept for me i actually haven't read the book but i understand how, it how would i know of, like how would i know if if my parents are emotionally immature or if you, well, I you don't, parent. the answer is yeah. you, you don't yeah. because you're a child and you're looking to them in a certain way. And the only way that you could begin to identify your parents in this way is to first reach a certain level of maturity and health yourself mm. that you have differentiation and autonomy to be able to critique them. And so prior to that, you're, very unwilling or unlikely to even criticize your parents yeah. because that itself is threatening to a child. So it kind of becomes a double bind that the child has to get needs met sufficient that they can be differentiated enough that they can start to view their parents from the lens of separate people that are just humans and make assessments about their behavior. Certain things that can happen outside of that are moments where you may, it may become clear to you, no matter what you want to believe, you can understand that your parents are doing something wrong. And I think that can happen and happened for me. Um, my mother, like historically, just to give a little background, my parents split when I was four years old hmm. and I was the youngest of seven. And um, my mother uh left my father and and took him and so a lot, a lot of my life i was moving back and forth um many years um i ended up in southeast texas for a bit of time off and on where my mother had family and there's a little mormon hub down there and then i would end up back in utah etc but um these turbulent events themselves are a part of the emotional immaturity is like not thinking about how the moving will impact a child. And um, my mother would say things like, God has told me this, so it's unquestionable, and then do something dramatic that affected everybody's life, like moving over and over and over and over. God's telling me to go here. God's telling me to move again. And as kids, we just felt the chaos of that. Right. Um, Things that I became aware of later um, with both of my parents and their way of responding was in attempts to communicate something like critical feedback to my father. It's just not something that can he can tolerate. My dad would do things in moments where I'm trying to give him critical feedback and he's going to start accusing me of things or or saying you do this too and i'm just sitting there thinking and at this point i have enough experience with um with other adults that i know not every adult acts like him yeah so that's part of how i became aware of this but just and i can speak more to the interpersonal interactions that i've had with my parents um 
But yeah, uh, and 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 look, we we don't need to throw your parents specifically under the bus, but we're kind right, of drilling right, into to right. those things that I'm really interested in of, of yeah. like, yeah, if if I like, what are the aspects of maturity or immaturity, like emotional maturity mm-hmm. or immaturity? Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. with with mm-hmm. your mom, you talked about mm-hmm. like this impulsive decision making where it's mm-hmm. not really thinking through how that's how her choices are going to impact the kids. Yeah, with your dad, it's the inability to really uh have have a discussion about criticism like to accept criticism to be introspective to be self-reflective yeah i don't know how, like how how would you describe those like these are the aspects of emotional maturity or immaturity that are either low or high so somebody who is emotionally mature mm-hmm. um in my opinion they're going to be able to do a few different things which is they can hear different perspectives without becoming reactive to them that's one because it doesn't it doesn't threaten anything so they're not getting triggered and going into that fight or flight exactly exactly my father goes immediately into a fight or flight and it's i've really come to and i'll just speak to him and it it is what it is uh or speak to how he was specifically is i've thought there must be some really early developmental and i've heard enough stories to know there was something some traumas that have his reaction, I would almost put it like age two, very, very early, age two or three. So you think about how a child around that age deals with emotional distress in the outside environment. They can get in arguments. There's a really cute one, and maybe you've seen it where the little two kids are talking about it's it's sprinkling or it's raining. Have you seen this video? Mm-mm. So it's a great one to illustrate distress for children it's very cute people can look it up but these little boy and little girl are arguing about what their mom told them precipitation is one calls it rain one calls it sprinkling and it's really cute and the little boy goes no because my mom told me it was sprinkling (laughs) and the little girl's like no my mom said it's raining and they get really distressed so one of the core fundamental ways we think about people fighting or getting into difference their emotional maturity really predicts how they're going to handle that encounter. And one of the ways that people begin to fight or get into conflict, because we have different strategies for conflict besides, or strategies for dealing with difference besides conflict and besides fighting, is they get nervous system upregulation as a result of the difference. And that can lead to different ways of trying to solve that feeling in their body. I believe that any difference, even especially political, religious, or directly critical to my father creates an immediate sense of distress in him. And the empathic caring side of me is that I believe he had really rough experiences at very early ages, which which froze him in some very earlier places in development where he feels his existence is in threat, similar to those kids that the very difference in word is having a jarring effect on them. They don't have nuance. They don't have the ability to do that. That just means I'm totally wrong. Reality is wrong. It's a very scary event if something doesn't fit and they want to conquer the other's reality to make their reality hold. And this will have relevance to many things that I think we talk about because it's a foundational event of dealing with difference between individuals, in cultures, in stories, in all this stuff that, um, I think is relevant to the listeners, but that experience in my dad is something I just encountered constantly. It was just, you couldn't even present the most 
basic differences without him just jumping in to try to change you to get to make you be like him so he could settle his nervous system again. Yeah. So that's an example of emotional immaturity and kind of a small explanation of how yeah. mature it, it leads to different things, ability to see difference without feeling threatened by it, ability to appreciate and and care about other people's emotional experience while holding and honoring your own experience yeah. separate from theirs. Um that's the that's the that's it right there, isn't yeah. it? Like yeah. it, it, it's funny as as I've been listening to you give the explanation, I was thinking about, you know, we we were kind of joking around via text about the name Infants on Thrones. And you suggested yeah. oh, maybe it's time to be called teenagers on thrones. They're like, I don't know if we're ready for that. Maybe preteens on thrones <laughs> on thrones. <laughs> but it kind of is like this emotional maturity, you know, like right. the, the emotional right. maturity of an infant coming out of this this system where like you said there's pressure social pressure all kinds of different pressure that conditions you to think and feel and cope in certain ways within mormonism and it's not monolithic i mean it's i think every family has their own little unique way that they apply the overall mormon stuff but one of the things that we're interested in doing is looking at the way that mormonism impacted our maturity, right? Yeah, and and then what? Where where do we go from there? And um, so we're we're, we're going to talk about some things. That, so this this is a good first uh, first step. I like where this is going. What 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 else do you want to add to this, Josh? The emotional just, maturity, and then yeah, and then we're like leading yeah. to the like the needs being met. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just I was thinking I was I um not the best thing to do on a podcast in audio oh, form. It's fine. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about this concept of maturing and my mind was going some different directions with analogies on it. Um, I'd love to hear. Yeah. And it's this idea of like, so with a faith crisis, there's kind of, or at least a specific one with Mormonism, there's specific things that I believe are patternistic or trends. And one of the trends with the Mormon way that we're talking about is that certain parts of you are very, very infant-like and underdeveloped or atrophied. And one of them is kind of an internalized sense of values and autonomy and that your own voice has a self-respecting gravity to it that you have a relationship to because it's mostly externalized um, through the church, how you make decisions, what you ought to do, and your kind of suppressing or binding that part of you so that it doesn't get exercised. And so when you're talking, I'm not about sure that, I'm totally following you on, could you give me an example? Yes. Of, yes. Yes. To so, so an example to illustrate it is what do I think about how, what is my relationship to how much respect I give my own thoughts? Hmm. And in Mormonism, I would say it's a common trend to not have a deeply developed sense of respect for your own opinions, thoughts, and, and, and reality, mm -hmm. because you're constantly being taught to suppress that yeah. into the structure. So it's a way of, it's an infant um, or kind of um, atrophied self-respecting ability yeah. to really respect and honor and connect to oneself instead of an external, external support system. 
And so I think people who come out of Mormonism, like many people coming out of abusive relationships, they seek another abusive relationship to meet the needs the other abusive relationship met, and they end up often in the same place. And so a lot of Mormons come out with infant-like thinking, as you would, from this ability to respect their own thoughts, beliefs, opinions, and they seek another authoritarian moral regime, worldview model, and we see the patterns, we see where they end up. And, and yeah, 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 that that makes a lot of sense. Because uh, so as you were explaining that, I thought back to an experience I had in an elders quorum, many, many years ago, it's been a long time since I've been in an elders quorum. And somebody was talking about this article that somebody had done. And they're like, yeah, I, I read it. And I'm not sure what to think about it. Um, but the it was written by a general authority, so it has to be good, you know, or, or something like that. And I, I, I'm sitting there in Bloomington, Indiana. Everybody in the elders quorum is in graduate school, and I'm like, we're being trained how to critically think about things. And I don't remember exactly what he brought up and how he did it, but that sentiment of like, I can't really reason this for myself, but this guy who wrote it, he's a general authority, so I'm just going to believe that. I remember at the time that was a huge red flag to me. And I, I went, wait a minute, what, shouldn't we also go in and think about this for ourselves? And it created kind of a, it, it was almost like a loyalty discussion. Like if, yep. if you would yes. somehow think that you, I, I even had this with Joseph Smith once. Like I was, <laughs> I, oh man, this has taken me down a major rabbit hole of memories coming up here, Josh, when I <laughs> was reading first Corinthians 15 is that what it was where it was like the telestial and the terrestrial and the celestial kingdom i was doing a preparing a lesson for gospel doctrine class and i really wanted to understand the etymology of these words i think and, corinthians only has terrestrial and right. celestial I oh think yeah telestial telestial was a glossolalia joseph Smith <laughs> invention yeah it was he was just ripping off of yeah, the other ones totally it does in it. And and so I went into <laughs> Corinthians and I'm like, okay, celestial means heaven. Oh yeah. So yeah. And, and terrestrial means earth, like Terra, mother earth. Oh, okay. Duh. So there's these two columns of like the things that are earthly and the things that are heavenly, the things that are corruptible and things that are incorruptible, things that are moral, things that are immoral. And there's no room for a third category there. <laughs> and and it, like the celestial thing, it just, it drove me nuts. And I went to my bishop, I went to all these, I'm like, why, why is this, why are we saying that the Joseph Smith translation is more accurate? Because when you look at this, it just does not make sense. And people just like blank stares, they didn't know what to think. And at that moment I went, do I, am I smarter than Joseph Smith? Like, is it possible that I'm looking at this? That, like, am I right? And he's wrong. That was like a huge shift. For, like, it almost felt like hubris for me to even entertain that idea. And I'm like, well, I'm getting a PhD in whatever year it was, 2002 or whatever year it was. And, you know, like Joseph Smith's this farm boy in the 1800s. Yeah, I think I'm smarter than him. I think I know more about the world than, than he did. And probably all those earlier guys, I'm probably smarter. And that was really uncomfortable for me at the time. Yeah. yeah. I, I felt like I can't tell anybody this or I'm going to be like run out on a rail. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a great example. It's a great example of um, the the point that essentially you have these, you have the capacity to think for yourself and to make your own judgments and evaluate things can't help it 
and it's going <laughs> to yes and and it's going to happen but if it gets in conflict with what i would call a social truth mm-hmm. which is not something that people put um make available for critique like um i can name a social truth right now that is pedophilia is bad this is a social truth i agree with and i think most people agree yeah, with the social truth but if you question that social yeah. truth the questioning itself is heresy now there's some things that it feels even appropriate to have in that zone particularly this topic in my view i would say that's a fine social truth and it's functioning in a way that i'm comfortable with actually and aware of um but mormonism overreaches that to the dampening of your ability to connect or think for your own self and that example you're illustrating is when you understood something that the social information or ways to think about it didn't couldn't contain and once you're outside of that critiquing it comes at risk because now you can lose social status for attacking this idea that isn't one that we use the scientific method on it's one that believing the belief itself is virtuous and this is one of the ways in which Mormonism atrophies the self-relationship is it overextends that to almost everything regarding these really absurd fundamental claims that cause you to underdevelop your own relationship to yourself. Yeah. So it's an infant self-relating and self-expressing and self-exploring and self-developing. And it's extremely um, limiting and painful and it leaves you underdeveloped. So- and it yeah. it seems like it creates this habit of self-doubt and self-deprecation that you, it just is hard to escape from that. I, I I would I think that the school system kind of does this in a way too, Josh. And maybe some of the troubles that you had as a kid who had a lot of energy, you didn't really fit into the model of how mm-hmm. you were supposed to be educated or what education means. Right. And there were probably, I'm guessing, the, the the this time where you would come up against the pressure and you would just kind of like turn off whatever was your instinct that you thought was right to do, but it was bumping up against this social truth in school. I don't know. Am, am I? <laughs> you know, it's funny because I'm I'm reflecting on it and I'm thinking about it. And this is one of the things I really admire about my mom. She comes from a father who is an entrepreneur and kind of do-it-yourself guy, and she's always had the same attitude. Mm -hmm. As a result, she's always kind of held school in somewhat disregard, Mm -hmm. and she also didn't emphasize education on me, which has left me just a blank spot of anxiety, really. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is I also didn't fully respect school myself, and so... I think I actually escaped what I would say the main message of school. The main thing it teaches you is obey, which is similar. Obey, uh, do what we say. Well, it's even more than conform because in a way it's worse because it's training you to jump when they say jump. The point isn't to actually learn a thing. It's to to take a test and demonstrate you can jump through a hoop when told to do that. Yeah. And I pretty much escaped a lot of that, although I the result was just a ton of anxiety because I was never doing what I was supposed to do. I was always pretty crazy. Um, Is that anxiety where you you feel like you don't fit? And and maybe this goes into like the needs, uh, like the the needs that you have, where because you talked earlier about the need to be validated. 
Yeah, it did. It did come to that. So I wanted to feel important and loved by my parents. And that was something I didn't get because of their emotional immaturity. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways, the only ways I could get that was through um, religiosity, we could say. The more Mormon I was, that was rewarded. And so that became an important organizing way. I met the need of feeling valuable and loved by my parents and important to them. Um, There was also just a lot of actual unavailability from both of them because of the divorce early on, kept my dad out of the picture and my mom was always working. So I didn't have a lot of time with her. I didn't grow up in her presence very often. Many times there would be nobody in the house when my sister Courtney and I would come home from school when we were very young, like second, third grade, first grade, and other siblings that were older were kind of orbiting in and out at different times. Um, But so there was just a lot of this empty space. Um, Okay. I think I lost my train of thought on this (laughs) because I was, no, I, I I don't know. We're, we're going along. We're talking about the needs, the need for validation. Yes. Yes. So that's the need part. So that ties the story back. So a lot of this need just to feel loved and cared about by parents that were available and physically present was not met. So uh, in school, I also had pressures put on me that weren't necessarily tied to this, but I also knew that smart people were valuable from society and being intelligent and smart is always emphasized and being dumb is bad. So these are things I ingested too, but I didn't have much support from parents at all. I grew up rather feral. Um, And so this desire to feel valuable and loved and important um, could be met through this, but in schooling, I also knew that was there, but I always didn't fit that system. There wasn't a lot of emphasis from my mother on that. Um, and she would do the best she could, but I think was very, very busy and just trying to basically survive. Um, and so when I finally got into just regular university, I started to actually do the systems that were there more proactively than ever before. Uh, funny enough, a very foundational part of my adult learning was coming back to classic literature with my friend Taylor Deco, who um, started a book club and we just read classic literature and I would read like 20 books during the summer and we were just grinding and grinding through all this literature and like some modern classics as well. Uh, Read some Kurt Vonnegut and other folks more contemporary, but that was like a whole new education for me as well. And that happened, I think my freshman or sophomore year of college kind of throughout that year, I probably read like over a hundred or 200 books that were in just the classics. I read all of Unabridged, Don Quixote and Les Mis and like a bunch of other stuff. Mm. And it just like, that was crazy. But like read, read or listened, read. I read them. I picked them up and read them. Yeah. Wow. So that was big to read all these books as an adult. Yeah. Um, And also I think useful because I appreciated them and thought they were amazing. Yeah. Um, And then in college, I started to click that I could actually learn because I had a lot of self-doubt and your question about it leading to self-doubt, I think it's more foundational and primitive than that. And I did want to speak to that, which is it atrophies the self-relationship. So it's even more pre-verbal or in a sense than doubt. Doubt Mm. is a different thing. It's almost like, I don't know myself. You become alien. That's one of the ways of thinking about it is you are alien to your own self because you have over uh, committed to the community's needs for you. And so this is actually a gestalt way of thinking that my 
one of my gestalt heroes, Anna um, or Hannah, Hannah Hostrup, she defines it as a polarity of overly involved in the self leads to isolation over uh, connection to the community leads to becoming alien to the self. And all of us are in this tension. Hmm. And for me, Mormonism definitely pushes you into alienating your relationship to self to maintain larger connection and social uh, cohesion. And so the corrective uh, adjustment is to become more connected to the self and to be able to expand into that and to become more self-respecting, self-understanding and self-connected yeah. and self-relating as a, as a total. Self-doubt fits somewhere in there, but it's a little more lower base level thing I'm talking about. And And when I'm... When I'm thinking about self-doubt, am I what what I'm what I'm thinking about is people who don't think that they have any value, you know, like mm. what 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 I think, my opinion, uh, my experience, yeah. there's no value in this, you know, like I, w- when I would teach uh, English composition classes again, going way back, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we would have like personal essays, you know, like mm. r- write something and, you know, some and, and I'd have people who just didn't know what to write about and they didn't feel like they could or it wasn't any good or it wasn't and i just remember mm-hmm. <laughs> feeling really frustrated about that mm-hmm. and wanting to encourage mm-hmm. my students mm-hmm. to believe in themselves more and you know mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. no one has lived the life that you've lived no one thinks right. the thoughts that you think about that you know like so share your unique and expressive self and there was yeah that that i the the theory that I have formed is that school, like the schooling system, uh, disincentivized people yes. to share themselves because it might right. not be the right answer and you might get right. your hand slapped, you know, right. or put the dunce cap on or something like that. Right. So it's kind of this suppressing your own unique experience of life. And you're thinking yeah. you're constantly looking like, it, what do other people think? Yes. Is this okay? <laughs> you know, yeah. And that yeah, sort yeah. of thing. So that that's that, a, that's a kind of all rolled in when I'm thinking about self-doubt. That makes a lot of sense. I understand that. Um that reminds me of I maybe mentioned it when we briefly talked the other day. Um self-reliance mm. by uh Ralph Waldo Emerson. He's essentially talking about this and it 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 resonates with what you're saying, which is this idea of respecting your own originality as a virtuous thing. Yeah, that's worthy and important. And it's important because it's yours. Yeah. And that is where it is inherently valuable. And so his essay kind of returns you to acknowledging the inherent worth of your own original thinking for the sake of its own originalness and for no sake of anything else. And to kind of put other people's thinking in its proper relationship to that he would be one supporting leaning a lot more towards the self, or at least the essay mm-hmm. brings us back to the importance of that and illustrates that this is an ongoing human struggle, that it exists in many different ways and dynamics and has been a human problem for as long as humans are around. And it's a problem that chimpanzees face, mm-hmm. which is maintaining a self and remaining in connection to others and the needs between both, Yeah, which is a gestalt principle of how do we do this? And that's what predominates how we function in relationships yeah all right so i I think we've i think we've covered the (laughs) exhaustively this little double click that i I wanted to to go on uh yeah about the emotional maturity 
about the the needs that you have. We talked about the need for validation fitting in. Yeah. And then yeah. you've you've talked about gestalt therapy several times. So let's let's dive into that just to wrap up today. And then maybe that'll we'll kind of like touch on a couple of things that we'll be talking about in future conversations from there. Yeah. Well, just to kind of piggyback off of needs, um well, there's so many different things. My mind's going like five different angles. Yeah. Um but one of the things that kind of gestalt therapy invites us to consider is how our need for anything organizes our reality itself. The Mm -hmm. need is organized. It, the need serves as a catalyzing or motivating force for how meaning, um, emerges. And so for example, um, if I'm in a room and there's a chair the chair has a very specific meaning to me and a function and a way of relating to it. But if I'm in the room and all of a sudden the temperature in that room goes to negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit, I may find the chair to have a new meaning to me, which is firewood. Uh, and and i may organize or if someone's banging on the door the chair may organize as a uh blocking for the door the what it serves as or how it how i relate how it functions Mm -hmm. is in part and it's not total um but in part it it is shaped and even and you go different layers you have more about how these things unfold how need shapes the way we understand and engage with the world around us at all times so if you just need to sit down the chair's there for that but if it's really cold and you need heat well then you'd use it for something else and so maybe it's firewood now yeah yeah now it means firewood to me or means possibility for firewood even though i still may maintain because of previous experience that it has this you know but if i (laughs) this gets into like rigid formation you could be a person that thinks chairs are sacred and so it can never be used as firewood yeah um no matter because you've got a deeper need there for yeah yeah Yeah. to 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 connect to the community or uh, the social need is predominating yeah the the need to maintain the social truth Mm -hmm. (laughs) the chair is sacred and cannot be burned yeah um but that's kind of a an example based on what we were talking about and just kind of just touching on needs a bit and my own leaving Mormonism, but kind of piggybacking that into uh, Gestalt was I had a need actually around this thing we've been talking about to feel more because I was so I was so lonely from mm-hmm. leaving Mormonism. I was so yeah. hungry for community, and that's part of what um, the the podcasting world and what you and and the other guys gave to me was a chance to feel safe expressing my own inner thoughts and my own original beliefs. Um, And when I found the training program that taught me Gestalt therapy, I I was going through some of my um, post-Mormon stuff. It it had been a couple of years and I was further along in that, but I still was now needing community and especially a place where I felt authenticity was extremely built into the value set because of my need to be able to be safe to be me and when i went there i just saw people doing this amazing thing where they were showing up and being more authentic and more real than i had ever felt because of the constant suppressing to fit the mold in so many other places as this was in the gestalt training that you 
you went to you this said? this was in the gestalt training it was by bob and rita resnick it was their um gatla program but that that's gestalt associates training in los angeles but it was a chapter in seattle that was focused on couples work working with couples where uh bob and rita resnick would come up here and train and bob has passed um rita's still with us but she's aging and not participating as actively as much in the training programs uh but i got there and i was just i was i was blown away i was blown away by what these people were doing what i was seeing i saw people showing up taking risks owning themselves and talk about like my own built-in radar for seeking emotional maturity this was like the most emotionally mature group i'd ever been around and their ability to interact with difference and hold it without social truth dominating but having these principles and values that appreciated people's individual present moment real authentic experience is kind of the currency of of the community it's 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 even said that present moment experience is the currency of connection that was something yeah. i heard bob resnick say a lot um say, say and, that again present um, present moment connection experience you know no, present, present moment, moment experience. experience is the currency of connection the currency of connection both in money but also energetic exchange it's like i'm being fully in touch with what i am experiencing right now and sharing that with you and yeah. if you do the same we have the highest level of connection and there's another level up from that called intimacy where that's happening but i'm not scanning myself at all or scanning you for any level of safety there's a free flowing ease with which that's happening and that's what we call intimacy where there's no monitoring of self or other there's just a complete nervous system relax and an expression exchange going back and forth so is that a non-judgmental space i think it would need to be because that would include monitoring self and other yeah that's what when you're like monitoring self and other like i don't know that i am ever in that place josh where i'm not like monitoring myself or others and kind yeah. of like critically judging and taking the temperature is, is, th right. is this okay is this safe right. you know like i'm also, right. i'm really suspicious about yeah things. yep yeah yeah and i think that might be you know some level of vigilance you have um yeah. probably well earned um mm -hmm. and it, i think of it more like uh, a very, the word that comes to mind is like organism. It's a way of referring to humans that Gestalt therapists talk about the organism, but it's like a very, it feels like the same kind of energy to have that intimate experience as any other biological function and not to get nasty, but like peeing, pooping, vomiting, when it's just taking over and you're finally surrendering to the nausea and it almost feels like good, <laughs> but it's not, but it is it's like a very organic feeling or like an orgasm or something like this, like when the ability to fully release and, or I imagine nursing like a child when they're mm -hmm. nursing with their mother between the two, there's like a fulfillment of just complete ease and goodness. And you're enveloped in this like very almost psychedelic reality of connection. Um, and that's, I think for me, that's what's possible in the highest states of intimacy where there's no, it's finally so, so much of an overabundance of support and safety that both and a history and an ability and a kind of a, a value of both of the inherent value of humanity 
and a willingness to be there to witness each other. And that's where that can facilitate these really, really healing, empowering, powerful experiences. They're not, and that's the thing that I think Gestalt really hammers in is you are doing something with the person that is experiential. And that sounds so, it's very detached from how powerful those words really are when you understand like, if a doctor puts your arm back into socket, he's not talking to you about the ideas of relocating arm. He's doing something with and to you. And that is what the therapeutic encounter of contact between the client and the therapist can allow when it's the most, um, uh, the highest level amount of that, that person may have ever had in their life to be fully present with the person, um, taking them in, in the moment. And we, the Gestalt model looks at the different things that get in the way of that. We call them contact bound contact boundary disruptions. Um, and there are certain patterns that those follow around certain issues that we look at, but the idea being that the contact is the healing that allows, um, an experience that allows awareness to emerge in the person. And from those experiences of awareness, the person um, brings what might have otherwise been out of awareness. These terms mirror unconscious, conscious. Yeah. They're just a different framework. Right. Um, and those experiences allow the person to live with more intentionality. And that intentionality can allow for growth or it can allow for meaningfully doing the same thing. It does not mean that they need to change. It means they become more fully who they are and more deeply connected to their own sense of awareness of self. And from there, if they should endeavor a wish or a desire to integrate more values or experiment with new things, they can do so. They can take, what I would say is they can take more responsibility to live a meaningful life because what they're aware of, they can respond to both by doing the same thing meaningfully or experimenting with new things and learning and growing and developing deeper relationships with anything they may wish yeah. to do. Tell, tell me a little bit about what attracted you to Gestalt. Like, yeah. how, how did you come across it? And what was it about it that made you go, okay, yeah, this is what I want to dedicate my life to. I think this is going to be really powerful and helpful and healing. Interestingly enough, this is what I would call one of my fully more integrated spiritual experiences of my life, where I tapped into something outside of me that felt like some kind of uh, sense of calm and mm. do this and that something I, I don't want to organize it too much but that's that's what i'm aware of and that was applying to go to graduate school at seattle university always felt right to me and i always knew i would get in i don't know how to say it differently i knew that i would get in and i knew that it was the right fit for me the moment i applied and then from getting the letter for the interview to doing the interview to getting the acceptance letter i just knew that was where i was supposed to be when I went there, I studied existentialism and phenomenology, which are two crucial elements for understanding and moving into gestalt therapy uh, method and application uh, and theory. So I studied what I would say is a foundational approach to engaging with and learning gestalt therapy theory and application and method. Um so my entire under or my entire graduate program and and just tell me really quick uh existentialism and phenomenology those are those are big words what do they what do they mean what are they referring to existentialism is a um uh and there's there are probably listeners of yours that might be um 
phenomenologists and that's a whole world. Um, so we're more lightly phenomenological, but it's a, it's a thing. And I, <laughs> hopefully they don't roast me in the comments. Um, but, but we don't, a, I don't have comments anymore. Like I'm telling you, Josh, it, I don't, there's probably, we used to joke around about dozens and dozens of listeners of infants on thrones. <laughs> We've got dozens of listeners. I haven't published anything in five months. Okay. I don't know what's going right. to happen when I publish right. this thing, but all right, that's hilarious. Okay. Well, we'll see. Um, so for the dozens of listeners, yeah. Yeah. if there's any phenomenologists or existentialists, yeah. um, don't come at me, but I am more, I would consider an existentialist, which is essentially a philosophical branch of study of, philo of philosophy that uh, looks at the human being kind of as a bottleneck on the pursuit of what is the true and the good and the beautiful or whatever philosophy's foundations are. Um, and so these existentialists basically argue that the goal of what we're doing has to acknowledge some of these um, restrictions on how we interface with reality. And primarily that is that we are human. So they want to look at the nature of existence itself in order to be able to look at some of the constrictions placed upon us as beings with certain things. And so at first they're just arguing what is the what is the nature what is the essential nature of existence and from there how can we interface as humans with existence in a way that would allow us to um uh to get at the project of the true the good the beautiful and so existentialism is looking at what is the necessary elements of our reality and how do those shape how we interact with it so when, when you gave the example previously, uh, you were talking about how even primates, uh, what what was it? How, they're they, they're it, dealing with the dilemma of how do I maintain a self and have oh yeah, there's there's their social uh, yeah like navigating their social. That would be an existential approach because you're saying that the larger issue is connectivity and that there's like social groups, some kind of social order, some kind of harmony that has to be met. And like yes, yes, but beneath that would be an existential principle of separateness. Mm. So each person comes into the world as themselves. This is the nature of all humans. This is the existential. This is the thing that is inherently part of our reality. It is separateness. Yeah. And connection. We exist separately, but we exist in the world. And, and so and reliant and reliant upon it. So yeah. the feature of organismic separateness, but constant connection to reality, Heidegger calls this the being or Dasein and the being in the world is the phrase he gives to describe it in total. The being in the world is all his German phrase that describes separateness in the world, mm -hmm. individual being constantly in the greater environment and reality. So that is his existential is the being in the world. And so we are looking at each individual as a unique organism with separateness that features the dilemmas of separateness while being in the world at all times, fully reliant, fully connected, 100% a part of. And then what's the pragmatist approach or side of that? So the application or from that not method, pragmatist, it was, uh, what was the, what was the other one? It was existential and was it pragmatism? Oh, Phenomenology. No, phenomenology. Oh, I was it was wrong, wrong P word. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a while for me, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here. yeah. <laughs> he's been he's been off the track for five months. Give him yeah. a break. Yeah. Um 
phenomenology is another comes from the um, kind of existential idea that a mo the most appropriate approach to reality is not to take this essentialist view that like there's a perfect version of a chair, which is a more primitive um, way of thinking in philosophy. Um, and it's to take the approach that the best way to um, it's shifting from the best way to interact with reality is to describe it. And that method would be the phenomenological method is not a method of causal analysis and looking at what is essential about a thing, but looking at just describing it. And so it's a descriptive approach that's uniquely useful for gestalt therapists because we're no longer looking for the cause of your depression. We're asking you to describe it because we're not trying to treat a broken thing. We're trying to determine better understanding of you of self so you can take responsibility for your experience in the world, which is to understand meaningfully your depression. So it's a totally different uh, paradigm shift. It's a paradigm of what I view the human healing project as fundamentally. And so we look to phenomenology because our goal in the overarching healing project is not to fix a broken causal system, but it's to look at a being in the world and how they're meaningfully organizing reality to increase their awareness of their existence so that they can take more responsibility for that existence to live a more vital and meaningful life. Okay. I, I think I understand existentialism a little bit better than the phenomenology part, but that's just my own limitations right now as I'm listening to you right now. Phenomenology I, is a method of existentialism whereby okay. we describe. We describe things rather than seek to um, take them into parts and unstudy them. If we're studying reality as an existentialist, we use phenomenology as a method for gaining information about the outside world instead of using another method, which would be to pull it apart into atoms and causal chains. Mm, okay. We just prioritize human experiencing and we want a human to describe things that are uniquely human. So sadness, we wouldn't pull it apart into um, uh, the dopamine absence in the mind or a spike of cortisol or a neurochemical just, uh, explanation of causes. Mm -hmm. We would look at, can you describe what your human experience of sadness is? That would be the phenomenological method for understanding sadness, which is to understand it from its humanistic perspective of how a human being actually experiences it. Okay. Does that help it get a little more clear? I think so. But, you know, I'm I'm trying to resist the urge of asking more questions because I know we've been going for over an hour oh, and we don't yeah, have to talk yeah. about it all right now. Okay. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, yeah, that, no, it's, it's, it's helpful. And, and, and what that made me think of was if a, somebody goes into a psychiatrist and they say they're sad and they're like, okay, well, you've got these low dopamine levels or let me get prescribed this medication to you and here's your fix. And then you go out and okay, I'm not sad anymore, but you still haven't really addressed what's going on in your life. Well, so fundamentally there, Glenn is just this thing of like the built-in idea that sadness is bad. 
or needs to be fixed. <laughs> right. And yeah. so I can just, I had this visual when you said that of this person walking around with like a completely blank face, living life in this very detached, dead way. And their like slogan is, I'm not sad anymore, but they're clearly not, not thriving anything. or living. <laughs> yeah. I'm not I don't, sad anymore. I don't feel emotions anymore. So that I, you know, cause I didn't I want to feel the sadness part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I eliminated the sadness and therefore yeah. I eliminated my humanity. I eliminated the whole point. Yeah. Well, let's let's wrap up this discussion today. Um, you know, when when we talked last week, you you mentioned a couple of things, um, and, and I, I I don't want to spend too much time on these, but just to kind of introduce it. What one is how uh, lonely men, in particular, seem to be uh, in today's day and age, and you you just kind of recognize that there's an issue that you'd like to address there. And then the other one was around, you, you talked before about heresies, like challenging heresies, if there's some kind of a social truth that you're challenging and you're recognizing that there's a lot of that going on right now. And that that maybe we could take a look at what we've learned from coming out of Mormon think or being shaped by Mormon culture. And what does that tell us about the larger culture at whole when there's this kind of virtuous signaling and things like that that are going on. So so the the, the loneliness of men and the kind of cult-like uh, ideologies that are out there right now that we kind of want to explore a little bit of. What do you want to say about either of those two things, Josh? I'm really interested in needs, as we talked about before, and the needs of humans in our modern circumstance. And I think a larger cultural analysis from outside of many of the common dominating lenses would be very refreshing and needed. So I'm really interested in that, just describing cultural phenomena that are happening and not and attempting to do so outside of many of the modern paradigms. And I think that does include a lot of the issues that I think haven't been discussed, but are now coming to the surface in, and different people are showing up to speak on these topics, specifically around the experiences of men and what it is to be a man in the modern world. Um, loneliness is one issue, but just a larger way of um, seeing how schooling can impact men. I think it impacts men differently um, based on just... Um, hormone development and energy in the body, et cetera. There's lots of different things. I don't want to get too in specific here, but um, large. It's kind of like a response to toxic masculinity that's been. That's one of the frameworks that exists that I would like to speak outside of. Yeah. I would like to mm. not get sucked into fighting it or mm -hmm. joining it. I would rather look at what men are doing and try to describe and analyze the situation and add a positive voice for how to live well and come from our own place of our own original thinking and to let that be the primary guide um, as we explore and look at what's in front of us and what we see in the world. Um, this kind of leads to a, a larger thing as well, which is as you leave a, a kind of a cult, you can analyze what is the kind of um, what's the shared humanity that this thing had that it exists as humans? What do we learn about human beings and how does this show up in larger and smaller systems across society? And how does it help you engage um, to have been through 
a kind of rough <laughs> role like Mormonism presents, what do you gain and how does that serve you in when you encounter these same things in everyday relationships, all the way yeah. to larger societal um, pressures that we find ourselves in. So that's kind of what I'm, does that answer? That's what I'm interested in. I think so. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. what I think is a really cool project is to essentially exercise our own original thinking on some of these topics yeah. and look at what's going on and look at what other people are doing and talk about, you know, what impact it seems to be having or how they're framing the situation and try to speak. Yeah. As original thinkers in a world where a world of heresy, where having your own original thought or trying to come at something authentically and vulnerably is very punished on yeah. many levels. And so I wish to speak from my heart around the things that I think are important and talk about them so that other people having their own original thoughts can start to do more of the same. That sounds good. Well, I look forward to having the conversations with you, Josh. And I, I uh, hope that as we go forward, you'll do some gestalt therapy for me. Because <laughs> like uh, I, this idea of being in the moment and not getting not getting lost in the judgments of things or the monitoring of things or even like I, disassociating yeah yeah through uh fantasy you know right, and, and just right. like I find myself all the time I, mm -hmm. you know even as I think podcasting has helped train me to focus on a conversation as it's happening which mm -hmm. has been really good for me. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times I'll just get lost. I'll mm -hmm. I'll just kind of be like doing mm -hmm. my own thing, and then mm -hmm. oh, I'm, somebody's been talking. I it was like I was just in my own head, kind of thing. And so understanding, understanding myself a little bit more from that Gestalt perspective, uh, learning how to be more present. Uh, I, I'm I'm excited to to go forward with this. When you talked last week about the the kind of epidemic of loneliness yeah that our society seems to be in yeah. i i feel that yeah i feel that a lot and yeah. uh yeah yeah so i'm i'm yeah. interested in uh putting my shoulder to the wheel <laughs> yeah let's talk about it man there's a lot of people yeah. that want to hear this and want to have this conversation yeah. um and there's a lot of people i felt a lot of loneliness myself and the quiet despair of the modern man yeah. um with not a lot of outlets so i think it's an important dialogue um the other the other thing i'll say if you're open to it is just a reflection on a gestalt technique regarding what you were just saying mm -hmm. are you open to this oh for sure okay like right so, now so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just very simple it's okay. the goal is not to get out of your head right the goal is to notice if you're there and share it as you did and then you're present again and you're present with me at any moment where it's actually happening. Yeah. And that can keep you in the moment is not to be in the moment in a certain way, but to honor however you are and however you come into the moment, including when you're in your head. Yeah. It is another way of saying that you're never not in the moment. <laughs> well, you are, I understand that way of putting it, but you're not in the moment when you're captured when you're attempting to do two things at once and you're not in awareness of what it is you're doing, you're not in the moment, actually. You're in kind of, you might be in a past or you might be in another thing or there's places you can be, but it's when you wake up to it, then you're back. So, so can, it's 
the focus of your attention is not Bingo. in the moment. The focus of your attention is ruminating on the past or projecting yep. forward into or some kind of fantasy kind of thing. Being in a reactive state, perhaps. Yeah. Yep. But the awareness of like, okay, in the moment right now, I'm reacting reactive. on things or in the past. you could say i'm reactive and you yeah. could be correct yeah. yeah 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 and then that kind of like brings your awareness oh this is happening to me right now where i'm right now and then i could describe what it is and how it's happening how it's making and look at feel. it i can start to be with it i can start to gain new connection to it and then i can start to experiment and that's an empowering tool for self-awareness yes yes, yes. that's the that's one of the most yeah, we're we're getting into basically talking to Shalt now. Yeah. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. Lay down the weapons that you use against the world. We don't need another war. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Dashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune into the scene between the eyes. And take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts flow past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down on such